Hello and welcome to another edition of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about an unemployed middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, H.J. Doom, and this episode we're shivering our timbers, splicing our main braces and yo-ho-hoing all over the shop as we take on book 16 in the fighting fantasy sequence, Seas of Blood. I remember this one being great fun as a child, so I really hope it lives up to the nostalgia. Before we dive into the action, I need to thank a new patron. This is a kind soul who has taken pity on a man clearly in the throes of a devastating midlife crisis and backed my project on Patreon. Thanks so much, Thomas McGrenery. I hope I pronounced that okay. Your support helps keep me in old paperbacks and D6s, and it is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to help support my work, you can do so by going to patreon.com hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound. And it's the generosity of my patrons that allows me to produce bonus content, like the last episode where I played through a very strange Frankenstein-themed adventure game book. Now on with the show. Seas of Blood was written by Andrew Chapman, who had previously written the surreal and awful Space Assassin. If you haven't listened to that episode, I do highly recommend it. It is a weird old time. And he also wrote the pretty solidly entertaining Rings of Kether, which was the first genuinely good science fiction fighting fantasy book. Seas of Blood would be his last major contribution to fighting fantasy, so it would be really nice to see him go out on a high. It was illustrated by Bob Harvey, with cover art in the edition I've got by Rodney Matthews. It was released by Puffing Books in 1985. Let's get this thing started. So there's a certain amount of admin to get through. Uh, We are the captain of the pirate vessel Banshee, and together with our band of seasoned cutthroats, uh, we are scourging the lands of the inland sea, searching for golden slaves in a race against your greatest rival, Abdul the Butcher, which is a bit uh, a bit grim. Uh, I'm not sure that I've ever come across a heroic story where you're portraying a slaver before, with slavery having been one of the great moral failings of the human race over many thousands of years. Anyway, that's who we are. We are a pirate captain, and I've chosen the name Wangleton Lime Sprocket, as I feel that has a quite nice nautical air to it. We have our usual skill, stamina, and luck. So Captain Wangleton Lime Sprocket has a skill of 12, a stamina of 21, and a luck of 10. I think that's the first time in ages I've been going into a game book with a really good starting character. They're not rolled 100% fairly because a lot of the game books really are impossible to beat with average to low average scores so uh, I do take a four plus on all of these but as well as that we have the crew of the Banshee who have a couple of stats associated with them so they have a crew strike score which is 10 and a crew strength score which is 22 and these function exactly the same as skill and stamina but for ship to ship combat. We've also got booty to recall. Uh, We've got 20 gold pieces at the start and uh, we also have a log which records how long we've been traveling. So um, this is a race against Abdul the Butcher who shares his name 
almost with a legendary proponent of deathmatch pro wrestling, Abdullah the Butcher. The log is there to sort of show the elapsed time, but, and this is I think quite a clever system, you can rest and then you add a day to your log and you recover one point of stamina. That's quite cool. Bit of a risk-reward situation there. You want to push on to win the race, but you also want to recover stamina. So I think that's pretty cool. There's also a uh, handy and pretty detailed map of the area surrounding the Inland Sea. So we'll be referring to that, I think, many times through the course of the adventure. But it's got various places such as Isle of the Volcanoes, along with your classic made-up fantasy names like Kish, Shurapak, Lagash and Tack. So, yeah, real sort of mixture of stuff there. I think that's everything. So, let us dive straight into the Seas of Blood. The Wager. The city of Tack at the northern end of the Inland Sea is the greatest den of thieves, criminals, and cutthroats the civilized world has ever seen. Every form of vice and illicit activity is not only permitted, but even encouraged in this city of scum. This, your hometown, is where your adventures begin. I feel as though Tack is already a kind of cut price Port Black Sand. I'm not sure why this wasn't set in the area around Port Black Sand, given that that is Fighting Fantasy's premier hive of scum and villainy. But hey ho, of the numerous pirates drawn to Tack, you and Abdul the Butcher are recognised by all as being kings in daring and greed. However, neither of you are particularly wealthy, as your love of gambling consumes all the riches that you bring back from your journeys against the enemy cities of Lagash, Marad and Kish. The infamy that the two of you have bred is also the source of a great rivalry. You each try to outdo the other in increasingly dangerous but breathtakingly successful raids. Your goal, the title of King of the Pirates, the Sacker of Cities, is never bequeathed but only earned. One evening, while dicing against each other in one of Tack's gambling pits, somebody suggests that the two of you should have a contest to determine once and for all who is the greatest pirate. The idea instantly appeals to your audacious spirits. Yes, says Abdul, let us have a race of speed and treasure. You agree upon the terms of the contest. Each will take only one ship and sailing from Tack on an appointed day, will head for the distant Isle of Nippur, which lies deep in the great southern sea. The journey must be completed within 50 days, and, at the end, whoever has the greatest amount of gold wins the bet. With the shaking of hands all round and much toasting, the deal is sealed. Your journey is about to begin. That is a nice, tight, simple setup. We're both terrible, terrible people, and we want to find out which of us is legitimately the most terrible. Like, really, really simple premise, makes sense, exciting, kind of fun to be playing a villain for a change. That's not something that uh, Fighting Fantasy's really done before. And it feels kind of appropriate to Fighting Fantasy as well. It does have that kind of slightly grimy quality to it. On the day appointed for the beginning of the race, you take the Banshee out of the towering granite bay of Tack and into the Inland Sea. Abdul the Butcher's Haveldar cuts quietly through the water beside you. Far to the east is the hostile but rich port of Lagash. To the west is the Skythera Desert, across which the caravan routes to the cities of Kish, Kalar and Asur run. To the south is the mountainous isle of Enraki. Which will you do? Will you head towards Lagash for a dangerous but daring raid against its coastal shipping? 
travel to the Scythera Desert to plunder the rich western caravans, patrol the inland sea via the Isle of Enrake. So that's already an interesting decision to have to make. How dangerous and daring do I feel? I think I feel pretty darn dangerous and daring. I think Wangleton Lime Sprocket is the sort of character who throws caution to the wind. So I think we're going to head towards Lagash for a dangerous but daring raid against coastal shipping. Roll three dice. If the result is less than your crew's strength, add five days to your log and turn to the next page. If the result is equal to or greater than your, your crew's strength, add six days to your log. Okay. I think we should be all right here. In fact, I know we're going to be all right because on three dice, I can't get 22. So I don't even need to roll. So we add five days to the log. I instinctively feel as though I've made the wrong choice already. That might just be me projecting all of my previous history of making terrible choices onto this. You sail towards Lagash on the eastern rim, keeping a keen eye out for any of the numerous merchantmen that are attracted to the city. Fortune is running against you, however. Two triangular red sails appear on the horizon in front of the Banshee and sweep down towards you. They are Lagashian warships, decks crowded with marines, battle banners streaming in the wind. You heel the Banshee about and try and outsail the intruders. Three dice against crew strength again. Well, that's fine. I automatically win that as well. Cunning and skillful sailing puts one of the warships far behind. However, the other warship stays with you and eventually pulls alongside with a shower of grapples and arrows. You will have to fight. The warship has a crew strike of 10 and a strength of 8. We can escape, but that will cost us 2 crew strength. We have to win an attack round first. Okay, so early doors. I'm going to roll some nautical dice. That did not go well, despite having the same uh, crew strike as the warship and vastly more crew strength. I did win, but I've been reduced from a crew strength of 22 to a crew strength of 6. Yeah, that probably means I'm not going to be able to engage in much in the way of piracy, because I only have 6 pirates left. And that's not very many pirates. Whether through my poor decision making or my poor dice rolling, we are off to a truly brilliant start here. With the warship defeated, you board and search for loot. You find no gold, but five excellent captives from among the marines to sell in the slave markets of the Eastern Rim. I'm still not very comfortable with the idea that I'm enslaving people. That doesn't feel great to me. I mean... I suppose maybe they're just terrible people. If I imagine that literally everyone I enslave is actually a serial killer, then maybe I can live with myself a little bit better. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to imagine that everyone I capture and sell into slavery is either a murderer or an estate agent. So, uh, five estate agents in my hold. Returning to the Banshee, you put the enemy vessel to the torch. When you head back to the inland sea towards Enraki, or travel down the coast to the Rivers of the Dead. Honest, the Rivers of the Dead doesn't sound great. Yeah, the Rivers of the Dead leading to the Sea of Fire. I'm going to go to Enraki because, yeah, going to the 
Rivers of the Dead just doesn't sound that great. So, let's see. The Banshee sails out into the inland sea. Roll three dice against your crew strength, adding four days or five days, depending on how we do. So, three dice. So, a two and a one and a four makes seven, which is one more than my crew strength of six. So, I've wasted a really good roll there. Ah... <sighs> I feel as though the universe has spotted that in real life I have a fear of large bodies of water that's quite paralysing. Yeah, I really, really don't like boats. I don't like boats at all in real life. And I feel as though somehow my entirely fictional crew has spotted the fact that I am absolutely terrified by the very trade I have taken up. And this this causes them to fight with considerably less aplomb than they would for someone who wasn't pathologically afraid of water. Still. Five days travel. Presently, you arrive off the northernmost tip of the mountainous Isle of Enraki, home of the warrior priests of Asser Seldablo. These fearsome holy men, armed by the gods of war and protected by the gods of stone, reside in a fortress raised on the lower slopes of the island's precipitous central snow-capped mountain. They are very rich. You have three options to deprive them of this wealth. A direct assault on the fortress. Me and my six mates. I think not. Gaining entry to the fortress via a deception of some kind and then pilfering whatever you can. I can't imagine that if I rock up to the rendezvous with Abdul the Butcher, having half-inched some spoons from the cutlery drawer, that... Abdul the Butcher is going to be spectacularly impressed. So I think we're going to go with the third option, finding a way over the mountains behind the castle so as to assault the most probably lightly defended rear. Taking most of your crew ashore, you begin exploring for a pass through the mountains behind the temple fortress. Add two days to your log. So that's a log now up to 12 days. Eventually you find a likely path and proceed up it through forest, scrub and finally snow. As you and your crew wend your way towards the high point of the pass, you see the unique eye-eye shape of an Enraki shrine poised on the nearby ridge. Its red wood structure howls eerily in the wind. Do you wish to detour to look at this shrine or continue along the path? I mean... I think you probably know me well enough by now to realise that even though my brain is telling me quite loudly, stick to the mission, stick to the mission, surprise attack on the monks, nick all their stuff, I am going to detour inevitably to have a look at the shrine because I cannot stand the not knowing. The shrine overlooks a bleak valley. As you lean against the structure to take in the view, you are overcome with a sense of dread and despair. Little does the author know that uh, a generalised sense of dread and despair is very much the mood of 2020. It's going to have to be significantly potent to get through the ambient levels of horror we're all experiencing. The black mood of this inhospitable and alien place robs you of your confidence. Lose two points of luck. So we're doing astonishingly well. Luck now down to eight. You return to your waiting crew and fearfully lead them towards the pass. Reaching the pass, you look down the further slope and spy a tower of the fortress some miles away. 
A sudden cry of anguish or fear flies out of a nearby, steeply climbing, snow-filled ravine. Taking stock, you find none of your crew are missing. The cry comes again, even more tortured and rending. Do you want to sidetrack into the ravine to see what is causing the noise, or ignore it and proceed down towards the temple castle? I mean, I'm going to see what's causing the noise. Let's have a little investigate, as... as... I think we should. The cry comes again, rolling eerily down the mountain slopes. You head up the ravine towards the source of the sound. Will you take your crew with you or creep along alone? I think I'm going to creep along alone and do a bit of a recce of the situation. The ravine is long, twisting and covered in snow. You walk up it slowly, listening to the increasingly louder and closer screams. Suddenly, Several large, shaggy, white beasts rise from cover some distance above and roll a huge ball of packed snow, ice and rocks down the ravine towards you. Test your skill. I have a skill of 12, so I cannot mess that up. Oh no, no, it's, I've got to get less than my skill, so I do have a, a very small chance of messing it up. First d6 is a 1, second is a 2. I am absolutely fine. Ducking under a protective finger of rock, you let the snowball crash past and disappear down the ravine. When it has passed safely by, you rise from cover and run back down the ravine to the path and your waiting crew, watching furtively over your shoulder as the snow beasts roll more missiles into place. The path winds down the mountain slope, taking all of you to a rocky point overlooking the rear of the castle. You can see that the walls are lowest at this point and offer the possibility of launching a surprise attack. You can also see right into the centre of the castle, to the enormous wooden temple that dominates the interior. Will you start the attack immediately by storming the low part of the wall, or try and confuse the defenders first by setting fire to their temple with fire arrows? You see, this is a bit of a bind, because my instinct is that confusion is good, and I should try and set fire to the temple, but if I set fire to the temple, and it goes really, really on fire, that is going to make looting it a bit of a challenge. So I think we're just going to go for the straightforward surprise attack, and trust a little bit to luck. Silently, you and your crew approach the rear wall of the stronghold. Then, with a rush, you all charge... Grappling irons fly, and the crew scrabbles for the parapet. You sweep over the wall and into the castle's interior, taking the warrior priests completely by surprise. They still put up a bit of a fight, however. So the Enraki priests have a skill of 8 and a strength of 10. I'm going to roll some dice and hopefully do better than the last time. Despite the element of surprise, the Inraki priests were able to defeat my crew, which in theory would bring this adventure to a very, very premature end. But it's far too soon to call it a day. We don't get to even vaguely claim that we're going to be able to finish Seas of Blood fairly, but I am going to generate a replacement crew by rolling 3d6 and we'll go forward as if. I had won against the Inraki priests. So Sausagey Finger Bookmark rule gives me one do-over. So let's see how big my new crew is. Ten. Okay, I can live with that. This has been some of the very worst rolling I think I've managed in 20-odd episodes of this podcast. Ah, this is irritating. With the defeat of the priests, your over-exuberant crew set fire to the temple part of the castle. 
The blaze destroys most of the booty that you might otherwise have claimed as victors. Searching around, however, you manage to find 85 gold pieces and 10 surviving priests to sell as slaves. I'm choosing to believe that these priests are also management consultants. So, 85. That takes us to 105 gold and 15 slaves. Bit aggravating that the crew set fire to the castle anyway, but hey-ho, on we go. The Banshee is sailing just off the southernmost tip of Enraki. Apart from this island, the horizon is clear, with neither ships nor clouds visible. The main trade routes between Kish and the eastern rim lie to the south, between Enraki and the shoals of Trista. You could patrol this stretch in search of rich merchantmen, or, if your crew have suffered casualties, you could sail to the neutral city of Asur to recruit some more men. Alternatively, if you're feeling lucky, and I very much am not, you could try your fortunes in the gambling pits of Kalar, or proceed along the eastern rim for a bit of coastal raiding. This is doing a great job of giving you the impression of having lots of choice in terms of how you approach the adventure. Whether that's an illusion or not, I don't know, but it is doing a really good job of making it feel as though I could sail kind of anywhere I want. And again, these all feel like meaningful decisions. Um, I mean, I could go to the neutral city to try and get my crew strength up from the 10 it is now to something a bit stronger, but I, I feel as though that's not really playing in the spirit of the sausagey fingered bookmark rule. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass on that one. I think we're gonna patrol the stretch between Enraki and the shoals of Trista. In search of rich merchantmen, we didn't find any the last time. They've got to be out there somewhere. The Banshee cuts through the quiet waters of the inland sea. Your lookouts keep a continuous watch on the clear horizon for any sign of shipping. So, roll our crew strength on 3d6. We succeed with a 9. If it's less than your crew strength, add 4 days to the log. The log is now up to 16 days. And it's an even number. Ooh, that's clever. The horizon remains monotonously flat and devoid of shipping. Test your luck. Nine. No, I am unlucky. Luck now down to seven. Without warning, the banshee crashes to a halt, sending you and your crew spilling across the deck. A tremendous bubbling froth boils around the ship. Out of this emerge several reptilian heads on long necks, all attached to one bloated black body. It is a hydra, mouths snapping, it arches over the deck, devouring your terrified crew. So there is a nice illustration of the hydra, and it's got it's kind of crew members hanging out of several of its mouths. Yeah, it looks pretty good. I would say it doesn't look that reptilian in a mad sort of way. There's a kind of slightly doggy aspect to it, if anything. But it does look pretty mean, and so it should with a strike of nine and a strength of eight. So, me and my crew are going to see if we can deal with this here Hydra. I'm going to roll some dice. We have defeated the Hydra, and uh, two crew members were eaten, reducing the crew strength to eight. But the crew acquitted themselves much, much better than in previous fights. So that's nice. 
maybe my luck has turned. Pulling the Hydra's carcass on board, you cut it open and find the grisly remains of sailors mixed with the odd shark and other scraps. The beast's gullet also contains some 52 gold pieces, which you add to your booty. So 157 gold pieces. That's pretty cool. You throw everything else back into the sea. Will you continue to patrol the inland sea by heading towards the shoals of Trista, or change course either to the west coast or the eastern rim for a bit of coastal raiding? I like the way it says a bit of coastal raiding. Like you might go and have a, a bit of cake. A bit of cake and a bit of coastal raiding. I guess if something's not working, uh, we, let's have a look. West coast or the eastern rim are our choices. Let's examine the map. Let's go for the west coast. The Banshee sails west towards the coast. Roll three dice. So trying to get three, trying to get less than the crew strength. Twelve. No, there's more than my crew strength. So we add six days to the log, taking the log up to 22 days. You reach the coast at a point just off Mount Martu Amuru. Mount Martu Amuru, a giant forest-covered peak that towers over the small fishing town of Kirkuk. My ability to say silly words is being given a uh, tremendous workout by this book. So, choices. Take your cutthroats ashore and try and frighten the townspeople into handing over most of their gold, or sail south along the coast towards the hostile city of Kish. I mean, it's not exactly the pirate romance, is it? Just shaking down fishermen for loose change, but that is what I'm going to do. Sailing straight into Kirkuk's harbour, you disembark with most of your crew, and order the gathering townsfolk to bring you their headman. When he duly arrives, you demand that the townsfolk pay you 200 gold pieces. Otherwise, you will raise the place to the ground and carry its occupants off as slaves. This is a heavy tax, your lordship, says the frightened elder, but come with me to the town coffers and I will give you everything we have. You and your men march with the town elder through the streets, arriving in a few minutes at a rather unimposing public building. And presumably it's unimposing because pirates keep turning up and stealing the renovation budget. As soon as he opens the door, a large number of soldiers dressed in the short blue robes and steel armour of the Kishian army charge out and attack your crew. More soldiers appear from around neighbouring buildings, and an enormous melee starts. There is a picture of the Kishian soldiers caught in the act of surprising us. It's just a weird hint of the village people about them. I think it's that they're kind of sort of static, but excitedly static. A couple of them have got moustaches, and a couple of them are waving their swords in a way that is slightly reminiscent of YMCA. However, there's no doubting that they present something of a challenge as they have a strike of eight and a strength of eight. So again, a lot of fighting in this one. I was so pleased when I rolled a skill of 12 and a stamina of 21, but so far all of the fighting has been with my lower crew skill of 10, which is a bit of a shame. Still, I'm going to roll some dice. Well, it turns out that the Kishians might well have been better advised to send in the village people because I have taken care of their soldiery really quite handily. Uh, I lost another two crewmen only, taking my crew strength now down to a mighty six, uh, but I have defeated the Kishian soldiers. The Kishian soldiers, badly beaten, turn tail and run, disappearing down the surrounding maze of streets. Further down the street in which you were fighting, 
you can see a large number of Kishian-winged hussars mustering into deeply packed ranks. Time to make an exit. Will you lead your crew at breakneck pace back to the Banshee, or dodge through the streets of the town with the aim of escaping into the forests of Mount Martu Amuru? Now, I feel as though a breakneck pace back to the Banshee is a logical choice, because otherwise we just live in the mountain now. <laughs> the second half of this adventure is just the story of an ex-pirate and his friends who are woodcutters now. Presumably the idea is that we might be able to get back to the Banshee at some point, but... If we don't get back to the Banshee, these fine, albeit incompetent soldiers will probably have commandeered it. So I think we're going to go hell for leather back to the Banshee. Your crew bring the warship's mainsail down and cut to the Banshee free of the grapples. Healing away, you sail up as fast as the wind will carry you. Will you sail around the shoals to the island of Trista, head southwest towards either Kish or the Rock, or travel southeast towards the Channel of Goth? Purely because I'm a big fan of bands like the Sisters of Mercy and the Fields of the Nephilim, I am going to go for the Channel of Goth. You steer wide of the hostile city of Marad. Roll three dice against your crew strength. So, crew strength now six. This is going to be, I suspect, a bit of an awkward one. No, no, that's, that's much more than my crew strength. So, five days added to the log. So, 27, I think. Yeah, 27 days on the log. As you get to within 50 leagues of the Channel of Goth, your lookout spies an island which is not indicated on any of your charts. Will you land on this island, continue towards the Channel of Goth, or head west, a path south of Trista on your way to the rock? Or we will go and investigate this island. Surely there must be buried treasure on it. Uncharted islands that don't have buried treasure on are... Like, vanishingly rare, I feel, in the world. Ah, there's a problem. <laughs> like, instantly spotted the problem. The island is like an enormous smooth granite boulder with neither beaches nor foliage. Lowering your ship's boat, you go ashore with a few crew. It's not an island, is it? It's some sort of sea monster. Either a massive whale or perhaps a massive turtle. Hopefully not a massive jellyfish. So we test our luck. Our luck currently seven. Oh, I know. That's, that's five. Five. Five is fine. Five is fine. You wander around the island, completely circumnavigating it within a couple of hours, not finding anything of any interest. You head back to the Banshee. When you sail south towards the Channel of Goth or west towards the Rock. I'm going to keep going towards the Channel of Goth because sailing west towards the Rock would mean that I really have zigzagged across the inland sea, something chronic. Also, the rock is very, very close to Kish, and Kish, clearly no fan of the pirates. Big fans of the village people, they love disco, but pirates, not so much. So, uh, yeah, we'll stick with the Channel of Goth. When you reach the narrowest point of the Channel of Goth, an extended line of warships appears on the horizon in your direction of travel. As you approach closer, you see that there are several hundred war galleys with the markings of Shurapak heading through the channel in battle formation. They stretch from the shores of the Isle of Volcanoes almost to the shores of the Eastern Rim. Turning back north to avoid conflict with this large force, you run into another long line of war galleys, this time from Marad. You realise the two city-states must be at war with each other, and you have quite inadvertently been caught in the middle of what is about to be an enormous naval battle. Both forces are roughly equal in size, but the Marad galleys 
Reputed to have five men on every oar are by far the larger vessels. Will you head for safety by trying to break through the Murad lines or the Shurapak lines? So it's going to be the Shurapak lines, isn't it? Because um, A, we're trying to head south and B, the Murad seem more dangerous. So we will try and break through the Shurapak lines. Will you cut across the front line of ships heading for the coast of the Eastern Rim or give full sail to the Banshee and try and speed your way through the attacking vessels? I am going to give full speed to the Banshee and try and speed my way through the attacking vessels because I can totally picture that in my head and it looks amazing in my head. Absolutely amazing. In one version, it looks amazing. In the other version in my head, there's the Yakety Sax music playing on top. So let's hope that we get the first version and not the bumbling incompetent version. The Banshee picks up pace as you trim the sails and aim for the space between the two nearest galleys. Will you try and run exactly between them, or veer off at the last moment to crash through and shear one of the galley's oars off? I feel as though I probably want to be turning at the last moment. I want to keep them guessing. The two vessels attempt to take the Banshee out with their rams, but your cunning manoeuvre takes them a little by surprise. Test your luck. My luck is now six, so this could go badly. So I am lucky. Luck now down to five. Your ship smashes through the warship's oars, but receives several volleys of arrows from the Shurapak marines crowding the other vessel's deck. Lose two points of crew strength, taking my crew down to four. It's going to get a bit lonely again, this, uh, this vessel. Breaking through the line of war galleys, you see a second, smaller squadron following up behind. Will you go with the wind cut in front of these vessels and head for the shore or try and break through as he did with the first line? I feel as though we've got to go for the shore because I got very lucky to get through the lines the first time. They're going to have seen what I've done and they will be taking adequate precautions. So let's go and cut in front of the vessels. Passing at a relatively safe distance, you are surprised when a missile from a ballista mounted on one of the galleys crashes into your mast, bringing the mainsail down on the deck in a confusion of white canvas. So three dice under the crew strength of four. So three ones. Let's see what happens when I roll the first dice. Three. I have already failed. The Banshee stops almost dead in the water while your crew try ineffectually to rehoist the sail. One of the enormous war galleys bears down on your craft, impales the banshee on its ram and breaks its back. You and your crew fall into the shark-infested waters. Your adventure is over. So that was Seas of Blood. I think it's fair to say that I am not a natural pirate. But uh, I'll be back to do a uh, post-mortem of this slightly sad and incompetent freebooting adventure on the high seas in just a couple of moments. So the big question is, did I enjoy Seas of Blood? Well, yes, I did. With some reservations. I think the massed combat works pretty well by simply being the usual fighting fantasy system with a slightly better set of rules for running away. And it also adds a different sense of jeopardy because as well as the risk of all your crew being killed, you'll also end up sailing much worse and losing increasingly valuable time. Uh, the second crew mechanic stops the mass combat from feeling like an unnecessary add-on and the interaction with the log mechanic is brilliant. Really, really good. 
the log mechanic is nice as well. You've only got so much time and adding days to your journey creates a tremendous sense of tension. These are simple, easy to grasp rules that systematize elements that fit with the theme of the book. Very strong approach to design. I also liked the sense of freedom that Caesar Blood conveys because it manages to combine broad possibilities with choices that feel meaningful. You can sail around the inland sea with a fair degree of autonomy, but it never feels like you're just being asked to pick a compass direction at random. Now, in the last bonus episode, the one Curse of Frankenstein, there was a lot of wandering through a more or less featureless snow-shrouded wilderness with no guide to what might lie in any particular compass direction. It was deeply frustrating. Here, however, you have freedom, but every action you take has purpose attached to it. You can look at the map and see where everything is and make a plan for how you want to sail and then more or less carry out that plan. It's open design, but it's not confusing because you've always got reference points, not least the map. It also makes seeking out different encounters on subsequent playthroughs nice and easy, even for someone like me who dislikes mapping. And that is a very difficult needle to thread. And the chances are you will need several playthroughs to beat Seas of Blood because the book is... Brutal, I think it's fair to say. I initially thought I was being particularly rubbish and unlucky on my recorded playthrough, whereas in actual fact I was being my usual rubbish self and a bit unlucky. Subsequent attempts have shown me that even if I'd been playing really well, I'd have struggled to finish on a first playthrough. The mass combats are plentiful and they are hard. And it's all too easy to get snowballed into a situation where you can't actually make it back to Nippur in time to even finish the race, no matter how much gold you've got. Added to the time pressure, you also need a lot of booty, serious amounts of moolah, a whole heap of spondulix. If you get to the end with less than 800 gold, you ain't winning no pirate race, my friend. So you need to explore thoroughly and at the same time, avoid getting into any fights, which can be avoided, and there's no way that's happening on your first go-around. There's also a lot of ways to die outside of combat, and I think to get through, you are going to need close to maximum stats for everything, including luck, because there's plenty of occasions where a single failed luck roll or a failed crew roll will see you as dead as disco. In an act of supreme cruelty, there's one item which, if you get it, will punish you brutally right at the end of the adventure. Now, I don't have a problem with fighting fantasy game books being difficult. Some of the best fighting fantasy books are really hard, but there's a mean-spirited quality to how Season Blood goes about it. You've got so many different ways to fail, even if you make the right choices, and a lot of the encounters are brutally difficult without offering much in the way of rewards. You can quite often go through a really, really challenging section only to be told that there's no real booty to be had from it. It's a stingy book, which feels a bit deflating when you've got so many other ways to lose. You've got time, crew and money, all as significant pressures. And I think there would have been more mileage in keeping time and crew as stressors and showering the player with all the gold they can carry so that in the unlikely, and it is unlikely, event that they actually make it to the finish on time, at least they can be fairly confident that they've outdone their rival. 
and it takes a shine off a bit which is a shame because the encounters are varied and fairly well designed as well as being extremely dangerous. Giving you a decent reward for beating them would have made the struggle feel, well, rewarding rather than the constant feeling of skirting right on the edge of disaster at all times. A really good adventure has highs and lows and the Seas of Blood tends towards having lows and sudden death. But that doesn't take away from some lovely and memorable set pieces. The climax of the adventure is a one-on-one -on -one fist fight which plays out across many paragraphs and feels really epic. There's also various hidden temples, caves, even a fight with some other pirates over booty. There's some wonderful and evocative monster design as well. And as I've often had occasion to remark, good novel monster design can somehow magically turn a skill and stamina score into something that stays with you. We also get to see some more simple iterations on the fighting fantasy combat system, including a giant leech that drains two stamina around automatically until you kill it, and our old friend, an invisible stalker, who you have to fight at a skill penalty. I'm really starting to believe that the fighting fantasy system might actually be genius. I never would have thought at the start of this project that people would be finding new twists 16 books deep. However, there's one big problem that has nothing to do with systems or the mechanical structure, both of which are really good. It's that the book doesn't do a particularly good job of making you feel like a pirate. I was looking forward to busting out some variably poor quality pirate voices, and I didn't get the opportunity. I was really hoping we'd be able to wallow in a whole bunch of pirate cliches along the way, but what we get is something rather drier and that feels like a massive missed opportunity. One of the things that makes Port Black Sand Fighting Fantasy's premier city setting so vibrant is its glorious cast of ruffians and ne'er-do-wells. If you're going to take the plunge and make the protagonist a robbing and pillaging anti-hero then I think you need to deliver on the fantasy of that premise. Instead of feeling like a swashbuckling sea dog I often ended up feeling like a cold and cynical slaver. When I think about portraying a fictional pirate, I generally think about swigging grog, fighting cutlass duels, executing daring coastal raids under the nose of priggish governors, outrunning the navy by moxie and chutzpah. What I don't think about is how much fun it might be to treat other human beings like animals and sell them for profit. Maybe Andrew Chapman wouldn't have been allowed to set his book in the area around Port Blacksand. I don't know how precious Ian Livingstone was about keeping certain areas of Alansia to himself, but Seas of Blood winds up feeling curiously cold and emotionless. It has some elements that feel faintly Middle Eastern, and others that come across as faintly Hellenic, and those are areas with plenty of piratic traditions of their own, but what could have been quite an interesting tour through piracy through the ages, it never quite lands. There's just an underwritten quality to Chapman's prose. All too often things that should feel spectacular are dealt with in clipped, matter-of-fact sentences that convey little emotional context. However, none of these problems stop Seas of Blood from being an enjoyable trip. The formal innovations are strong enough to help this book stick in the mind, and I very much enjoyed returning to it to try and puzzle out how it's put together. I still haven't completed it at time of recording, but I imagine I'll get there eventually. And I'm tempted to actually take some notes, maybe even <gasps> whisper it, make a map to try and find that elusive one true path. We didn't get to talk about the art much during the recording, but it is 
solid throughout. The illustrator has picked brilliant scenes to depict. There's no taking the easy way out and drawing, I don't know, empty seascapes or vague featureless landscapes that some other artists have been very much guilty of in earlier installments. There's lots of people and there's lots of monsters, which is exactly what you want to be looking at in fighting fantasy art. And it's definitely a book where the art is a real asset, especially with Chapman's sometimes cold prose style. The pictures do a great job of livening things up. Well, that is all for this episode. I think I've talked at quite enough length about this one. There probably won't be a bonus episode this month as I have some personal matters to attend to, but I'll definitely be back in early September when we'll be strapping on a cape, jumping off the nearest high building as we tackle the first fighting fantasy superhero story, Appointment with Fear or Appointment with F-E-A-R, if you read it as written. I'm very much looking forward to that. It's another one I never played through as a child. Uh, I hope you'll join me then. If you want to contact me in the meantime, then you can reach me by emailing hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. I'll see you soon.